Welcome to another episode of Emerge. In this episode, my guest is Ronan Harrington. Ronan is the creator of Alter Ego, a network and organization attempting to spread a vision of a metamodern politics throughout Europe. In this conversation, we talk about the nitty-gritty praxis of systems change, the realities of the emerging metamodern subculture and scene, some of the real-life joys and sorrows of trying to do this kind of work, and what it means to take on leadership in the midst of complexity. Please enjoy this episode of Emerge with Ronan Harrington. Welcome to another episode of Emerge. This week, or this episode, my guest is Ronan Harrington. Ronan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, so we've had a couple conversations about, or, or touch-ins about what we might talk about today. Um, and, you know, I, we, on this show, we've been sort of diving into this idea of a metamodern politics and, and really the, the whole topic of the show that weaves through every episode is sort of what is the next paradigm that human beings are going to discover and create that will resolve the sort of seemingly intractable problems of our current uh, instance of the human experiment. And so we've had these conversations that are quite theoretical and, and strategic about metamodernism and this kind of emerging political movement. Um, and Ronan, you occupy, I think, a very special and interesting place in the kind of ecological niche of this emerging culture, which is you're doing very tactical work. You're doing the kind of on the ground rabble rousing and organizing and network building um, that it takes to make real and lasting transformation. And I found out about you through your work with the organization Alter Ego. And so maybe it just by way of introduction, you know, to uh, who you are and what you're up to in the world, you could talk a little bit about, um, about Alter Ego, what, what, what did Alter Ego begin as and what has it become or is it becoming now? Yeah, so Alter Ego began as a gathering of 80 leaders in the progressive space, everyone from MPs, heads of think tanks to grassroots activists, artists. Um, and I, I suppose, put the call out uh, by saying that progressive politics is in crisis. There is an electoral crisis in that like, very few progressive political parties are winning, but there's also a crisis of ideas. Um, mm -hmm. And the premise of Alter Ego is that um, if progressive politics is missing something fundamental, we need to go to the source of what is fundamental to us, which is our spirituality. Um, and 
it was conceived of as a three-day weekend-long inquiry into whether spirituality could revitalize progressive politics. And not just an intellectual inquiry, but also a space for us to experience uh, what we often relegate to the private realm or that we go and do on retreats and then kind of come back into a professional context and don't talk about. So alongside panels and workshops and discussions, we had a death meditation where all 80 participants meditated on the last 12 hours of their life to the sound of shamanic drumming. Uh, mm. And it's in that kind of deeper space that you actually access the kind of deeper and broader realm of intelligence that is missing from mm. daily life and is definitely missing from political conversation. Mm. Um, that was two and a half years ago. It was before Trump. It was before Brexit. And it really came from, I suppose, this, like many of us, this sense of disenchantment from progressive politics. You know, I grew up watching the West Wing and uh, really hmm. had that, you know, that, that, that calling and hope for a visionary politics um, and uh, found that the politics that was on offer was, you know, a kind of a, a watered down version of neoliberalism on, on the center hmm. left or the left. Uh, and, and, and also in tandem with that, was going on, like many of our generation, a very um, intense and, you know, life-defining spiritual journey. Uh, and, mm. um, and, you know, everything from journeying into Zen Buddhism to psychedelics and, you know, going to Burning Man festivals and really getting in contact with a deeper self. And what I found was that um, that was where my own moral imagination, my own political vision came from. It was from mm. deep experience. And that was nowhere to be found in the public space, in the cultural mm. conversation, in the political conversation. Um, and so I was sitting with that, that feeling of how do we bridge these worlds? And I was kind of moving between them, you know, I was... Um, you know, I, I did a master's in post-capitalist economics at Schumacher College, which is a bit of a Hogwarts environment. You know, you live as an intentional community, you go on quite a journey. And then the next year, I did a 180 and went to the Oxford School of Government, where there was very little to no space given to, you know, the, a more authentic or vulnerable part of us. Um, and so I, I had many of these jarring experiences of trying to be in the established world of power. And what you might call the emerging transformative alternative. Um, and um, I uh, very much, um, yeah, have been trying to bridge those worlds and reconcile those worlds. And it was only until a very famous public moment when Russell Brand uh, was on Jeremy Paxman um, mm. and said, people shouldn't even bother voting. There's nothing on offer. Mm. And actually what we need is a spiritual revolution. And I got 10 million views. Mm. And it was one of those, it was a real seminal moment. And I remember me and Stephen Reed, who you has been on your podcast, were good friends in London. And we had been going to Burning Man festivals and had been organizing our own kind of transformational gatherings. And we were like, mm. let's, let's do one of those, but for people who work in politics and progressive mm. change. Um, and the final thing to say, just in terms of the genesis, 
it I only really had the the confidence to do it um, when I read a report by a guy called Jonathan Rousen, who's a chess grandmaster and a kind of a public intellectual in the UK. And he wrote a report for the RSA, which is quite a, a leading think tank in the UK called Spiritualize, Revitalizing Spirituality to Address 21st Century Challenges. And in that, which I would highly recommend to everyone to read, is the most incredibly cogent intellectual case for why if we want to change our systems, we have to go deep into uh, the cultural and personal territory and ultimately the spiritual. And so that almost gave me the confidence that I needed to be able to, you know, I suppose really put myself out there because even two and a half years ago, mm-hmm. it was a pretty strange uh, thing to do. You know, come come to this weekend where we're going to explore spirituality and politics, you know, and mm-hmm. it was putting a lot of, I suppose, mm, reputation on the line. And it was, you know, and it was, and the inquiry was so vague and unclear. And yet there was enough of a shared sense that there was something there that people can. Mm. Cool. And, and yes, I I read one of the articles you sent me and uh, love the line. um, You know, we have to therefore promote a spiritual turn amongst those who are in the system and a systemic turn for those who are spiritual. And I think from my perception, looking in from the outside, that seems to be the two demographics, we might say, that you are in dialogue with through alter ego, right? The people who are, quote unquote, in the system or interacting with the system, sort of making an argument for why spiritual experience is relevant to their work. And I imagine speaking to people who are more um, monomaniacal about spirituality and attempting them to, or attempting to convince them to sort of broaden their spirituality to include the realm of politics. And I'm just, I guess the first question I want to ask you, and it's just because of my own curiosity is, um, when you share your message with these two groups, um, what, are, what, what happens? Like, what is the kind of responses that you tend to get? You know, what's surprising? What have uh, you started to learn? And I, I mean, you know, it's a big question. Uh, start where you like, and I'll probably keep asking uh, further, further questions. I would say that the, the one, th- the thing that is central to a project like this is framing. And we have uh, an expression in alter ego that we're providing a solid invitation into a liquid experience. Um, uh, And uh, the liquid experience you might describe as like that moment when we experience a transformative um, uh, experience of ourselves in the world. You know, that could be on a dance floor at a rave or it could be with psychedelics or it could be through meditation. Um, But if that was framed explicitly as that what that is what we're going to do no one would come because it's deeply exposing uh, and so mm. it was a very very uh it was a very very careful exercise in framing um both like what the gathering was about and then depending on the audience uh the actual particular angle would change um it's pretty it was it was it's easy for people who are already spiritual uh, it's basically saying that thing that you value and that's important, 
there needs to be more of that in the world and ideally that needs to be reflected mm-hmm. in our politics and our institutions and if they are you know already in the activist space or they're socially minded you know it's like yes let's go um mm-hmm. and um it's harder i think for what i would describe as kind of open-minded progressives uh mm-hmm. who have you know who who are who are constantly thinking and talking about what's next are seeing this kind of emerging spiritual subculture the mainstreaming of mindfulness things like that and they're not really sure if there's something there they're not really sure is this just a kind of a lifestyle fad is this just another thing this neoliberalism has co-opted or does mm. it have some kind of transformative potential and what they do is they see the right um almost being the only people in town who are using a more mystical language. They have bypassed the rational narrative uh, that the intellectual left are kind of stuck in, and they're speaking at a much more visceral, emotional, embodied level. And they realize that on some level, uh, the progressive politics has lost its soul. It's lost its ability to really speak to a very um, innate part of us. Um, And so I I often would draw attention to that, uh, and imagine and ask them to imagine what that might look like um, broadly on the left. That's kind of where we started, even though we might talk about this later in the podcast, how my own inquiry into a more spiritual politics has kind of led me beyond the kind of the traditional left. But just to stay there for a moment in terms of the initial invite and the framing, you know, it is uh, it, it was about uh, trying to convey the potential of something um, uh, but that where that was it wasn't quite there yet either, um, so mm. I'm still asking a lot of them. Mm. Mm. And so, yeah, it, it makes sense to me that that spiritual people would be uh, more open to this kind of argument, um, whether or not they then, you know, I've noticed in my own experience with this sort of line of discourse that uh, people in the spiritual demographic will often agree with the idea of politicizing and and being political and yes, this needs to filter into culture and society, but then often they don't really have a a practice or, or a vehicle, you know, by which to realize those aspirations. Um, But I am, I guess, curious to dive in a little bit more uh, around, you know, how successful have you been at convincing or persuading uh, people coming from the other side of the equation, the folks who are more in the system, um, you know, people, as you say, I think in, in, on the, the traditional progressive left or the mainstream progressive left, like, uh, what's happened as you've unfolded this framing for them? Um, have they bought into it? Yeah. Yeah. So this is kind of lesson number, maybe lesson number two is that the framing will only get you so far. And ultimately, People both come into networks like this and come to gatherings like this because they trust you um, and that they feel on some level safe with you. Most of my work in Alter Ego, but particularly at the beginning, was this painstaking going out into progressive circles and kind of meeting people one-to-one and winning them over and getting them, mm-hmm. convincing them to come. And I've done like really, really like crazy things. I have heard, I heard that there was a gathering on a boat on the Seine in Paris, in which Caroline Lucas, the Green Party MP, Brigitte John's daughter, the founder of the Icelandic Pirate Party, and Uffe Elbeck, who's the founder of the Danish Alternative Party, all very kind of 
forward-thinking progressive leaders they would be on that boat mm. and i made it my business to like get on the channel train get on that boat and have four hours with them where they couldn't not engage <laughs> me you know and that's uh -huh. how i got uh -huh. caroline and brigitte to come so there is an element of um you know and there was you know other people who are quite high profile political thinkers you know, who I had to strong arm into coming and they were about to pull out. And, you know, so there was all kind of like crazy tactics mm. just to get them there. Because I trusted that once people were there, they would kind of similar to, you know, Burning Man. It's like once you're on the ground, you get it on some level. You can feel the potential and the importance of it. Um, in terms of how successful we have been, I think that in a way... Um, because it exists um and it's you know there's an there's a kind of a broad awareness of it in progressive circles not in all progressive circles it validates the basic idea validates the idea that spirituality can no longer be dismissed as a new age woo idea of no consequence that it has mm. kind of some kind of um instrumental value for politics if it doesn't already have instrumental uh, intrinsic value in your life uh, and so in a way, I think that probably more than anything, what we succeeded in doing, along with other organizations as well, obviously we're operating within like a wider ecosystem mm -hmm. of initiatives that are doing this, like Perspectiva and Meta Moderna and others, is um, that we have normalized it. It is now one of the big issues is that spirituality is taboo. And uh, we're all on some level in the spirit closet. Maybe not if you live in Boulder, but many people are in the spirit closet. And, uh, you know, I, it's interesting. You know, I, I, I'm finding it easier and easier to speak with confidence that this is spirituality is just, an, you know, it's, it's almost becoming normal. Mm. Um, and so that's been a big thing. Uh, I think that one thing that I've probably learned is that it's you know it's one thing to get someone you know particularly like an mp who just has no time to come away for a weekend and have this experience but obviously the default culture they return to not only just the default working culture of anyone's life but the default political culture the default party culture is so strong both strong in terms of its materialism um and also strong in terms of um you know, exposure really isn't a, a, a go-to area. It's, you know, it's not big on vulnerability. A lot of it mm -hmm. is fear of saying something potentially out of step in case you get taken down. And so it's very, very difficult to, as a, as a strategy, to kind of pick off individual people uh, if they're within a broader culture that doesn't, uh, that isn't a good um, ground for the, for the ideas. Uh, and so... I think that I've slowly um, kind of reorientated towards what what does the focusing both on cultural influencers who kind of have more room and license to speak and also um, focusing on kind of emerging political alternatives. So kind of parties that, um, for example, the initiative in Sweden um, which was inspired by the alternative in Denmark, which is a party that's been hugely inspired by metamodernism mm -hmm. and, and is full of metamodern people. And they have that developmental ethic and that kind of metamodern DNA. And I think that 
you know, as a as a political strategy, uh, it probably is better to cede those new, you know, what Hansi would call transpartisan political parties and movements in the system, try and get a couple of seats and try and be an attractor point for parties across the left and right to to be attracted towards developmental ideas mm. or towards the vision of the listening society, rather than you know, trying to convince a particular person in a think tank about these ideas, even though there is some value in that. Right. So I'm always grappling with, you know, do we work outside the system or do we work in the system? If we work in the system, do we try and kind of insert blocks of this DNA in this culture or do we focus on particularly influential people? Yeah, interesting. And, and it reminds me what you're saying of the quote, I think it's Max Planck who says, uh, you know, a new scientific truth doesn't triumph by convincing its opponents, and this is in the realm of science, but instead by, uh, because its opponents eventually die and a new generation grows up that is familiar with it. And I I guess I'm curious uh, the degree to which you've seen the your persuasion or or, or this emerging political movement taking place primarily within the context of the millennial generation. like how 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 strictly are you seeing this breakdown along generational lines? Um, I would say uh, that my experience so far has been um, that it's been millennials and Generation X that there is mm-hmm. you know there's a significant amount of people who are you know if, if I just take the UK as an example you know there's a whole generation that went through '90s rave culture there's a huge '90s rave culture in the UK mm-hmm. where every weekend there was like massive raves and people were taking ecstasy. Like there's a lot of people who have had that uh, ecstatic experience and have been in many respects searching for a way to reintegrate that into their lives and kind of haven't found it. Um, So I meet equally as many, you know, 35 to late 40 year olds who are at a particular stage in their career and are looking to advance these ideas. Um, Obviously, I think that, on the whole, uh, we would be better off really focusing on the millennial generation they are uh, and Gen Z to some extent in that it is this particular generation that has you know, deep values around meaning and purpose and belonging, has very little religious affiliation. So, And actually this points to um, another question. Uh, that I'm always sitting with, which is that I frame this as a political initiative. And in and, and I think that that was good because politics is the acute expression of the crisis. And there is a total crisis of ideas. And it's very obvious with things like Brexit and Trump. Mm. And yet, actually, if I think about the depth of change that is needed, it's almost at a religious infrastructure level yes. um, that it needs to happen. You know, and we often joke, you know, are we sure we're looking for a new political party or are we trying to start a new religion? Mm-hmm. And like it's uh, it, it, there is a grain of truth in that in actually it's the infrastructure and the architecture of society that conditions a certain self sense of self. And yes. that needs to be redesigned in order to reshape the new human. Mm. And so it kind of and, and, the, and then the other thing is that politics always responds to culture. Culture is the driver. Uh, and so what I've found is that even though it is a political initiative, the reason we call it deep politics is because it goes far beyond the realms 
of what is traditionally considered political. It goes far beyond policy. It goes far beyond representative parties. And it goes into the fabric of social life. Again, you know, a, a, an idea from Meta Moderna and the Listening Society that actually it's about changing the fabric itself. Yes. Um, and so that's a really, that's a really a kind of interesting question I'm always sitting mm. with is in the trajectory of these ideas, are we, should we be trying to create political expressions of it? Or should we be trying to reinvent religious practice for this kind of digital age? Should we be trying to, you know, just create a new cultural narrative and influence things that mm. way? And I, it's an open question. I'd love to. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, I think it's such a beautiful question, and it's actually yeah, one of the places where um, Stephen Reed and I started dancing in uh, in our conversation, and and. Yeah, I remember us sort of, I'm not sure if he said it or I said it, but that a lot of the problems that might at this point appear political, we'll, we will discover them to be spiritual in nature. And I think that there is, that that is actually an experience that we will have as a culture over time. And I think I, it also brings to mind a conversation I've been having with somebody named Bonita Roy about how problematic it is that we tend to act on the level of emergent patterns instead of attempting to address what we might call like the generator function of the emergent patterns, right? So we uh, try to talk about climate change, uh, but climate change doesn't exist, or, nor does patriarchy or, or other things that we might feel are problematic. Um, instead, what exists is is these emergent patterns that are a result of multitudes of minor interactions and activity. And so how do we start to work on that level? And it's it's yeah, and 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 so it makes sense to start thinking about things like creating new religious practices or new social technologies or something to get us beneath the level of talking about these problems and actually having experiences that might begin to shift our actual behavior. Yeah, I totally agree. So two helpful framings that I've found, because in a way, what I sense us doing is just trying to navigate our way around the problem, or even define what the problem is. Mm. And, uh, and, and new language and new framings can help. One that I really um, like, that comes from Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, um, this is a, a an idea that I read in one of Jonathan Rousen's pieces of writing. Is that there is there are the crises, or ecological crisis, or economic crisis, uh, crisis is writ large, and there is the meta crisis, which is the limited and harmful ways in which we approach and make sense of and discuss those problems. Mm. And it is at that level where we are discussing them in such a limited way that we have a, a basic inability to even grasp what the problem is and how we might go about solving it. Two of the primary ways that you will see this is an inner development blindness. So we talk about these problems with very little reference to how the state, the character development, the psychology, the, you know, the spiritual maturity of the individual, how that impacts the problem. And also, um, it's a, it's a, I suppose, a dialectical blindness. We are approaching all of these problems from ide partial ideological truths and then are going to war over them. So at a very basic level, there is a meta-crisis 
that we find very difficult to apprehend. Um, and then another framing that supports this, and again, this is from Jonathan Rowson, is this idea that in politics, there is the setting and there is the plot. The setting is the stage, it's, uh, it's the culture, it's the environment, it's the infrastructure, and that gives rise to a particular plot, um, a particular narrative that dominates the, you know, the news stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and, in, and in this case, to really, for us to make a, a shift uh, that could be described as transformative, it is about bringing the setting into discussions about the plot mm-hmm. um, and and understanding the ways in which our sh- setting shapes the plot. And that's obviously very difficult mm-hmm. because uh, our media culture is designed never t- to question the assumptions and cultural parameters of the conversation. It's just supposed to have the conversation. Um, and it has to have it in a very short, snappy, sound-bitey mm-hmm. way. And so this is one of the reasons why this rolling long format podcast YouTube culture has arisen is because actually we're at a place where we need to get at the parameters. We need to talk about the meta crisis. We need to talk about the setting um, and apprehend an agenda that then changes the setting, um, which will probably be through, you know, uh, in a Cambrian explosion of micro initiatives mm. that change the relations of everyday mm. life. Yeah, I love that. And I love the um, the kind of parallel that I see to spiritual practice, right? Like going meta, i.e. becoming aware of the drives and patterns that are constructing your experience, but on the collective level. And so there's a kind mm. of similar... Uh, uh, there's almost like a fractal thing that's being asked for on the level of our culture and our political systems, which I, I love it when there's that kind of, um, uh, uh, you can see those patterns. Um, and I, I guess I'm curious uh, for you, like what, so if you've identified that as this sort of problem solution or the the, 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 the key um ways of framing the problem, right? So dialectical blindness, interdimensional blindness, and a failure to talk explicitly about the setting. Um, What have you attempted or what have you seen being attempted that works or what have you learned in terms of attempting to open up those spaces? Well, I mean, I think that um, a large part of I think our work is is just to sh- is to share this shift in perspective, um, and then to trust that that will go on to inform the people who attend our gatherings, the people who watch our let's say our media, to then reflect that new code, that new meta code in their in all aspects of their life. Um, but I think that there is. Um, there's a kind of a strong red thread in in being the thing or modeling the alternative. So one thing that I'm very, very big on is uh, vulnerability in public life. How can we both model that ourselves and how can we create support people who actually have big, big public profiles to model vulnerability? Mm. And in a way, in doing that, that... Um, changes the parameters of the debate. The debate is, is 
you know, currently takes place where we put on our armor, we rehearse our scripts, we do not show feelings. That's all a part of the plot. Um, and that's derived by a particular developmental setting where we haven't really received proper instruction in how to express mm. our feelings. Um, and that's both been negatively reinforced by our parents and also at a fractal level by our schools and by our culture at large. And so if you have an individual who comes to an alter ego gathering, let's say an MP, and they experience a new setting, which is a space where there is psychological safety, where you are seen and accepted, um, where there's a, a space to really be radically honest, you can, you can take that new, the container of that new setting that now resides in yourself, and then you can disrupt the plot. So that's an example of on an individual level, how, um, how yeah. that might happen. Um, and, 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 and the, uh, you know, the interesting thing about vulnerability is that the truth of that truth recognizes truth yeah. and people are automatically invited into, um, dropping their yes. own masks. So that's a very like tiny yeah. example. Um, and then I think that it also works on a, um, so for example, uh, let's say at the, at the organizational level, we have people in our network. An example would be Indra Adnan, who founded the UK alternative political platform. And they would say that, you know, the pattern is that it's a representative politics pattern where, you know, the politicians decide which way to go and they're the strategists and the people are the tacticians. They knock on doors, mm. they get the votes. And actually the fundamental shift is a type of leadership that genuinely recognizes that people are already doing the alternative they are already self-organizing uh, at a community level to create the kind of futures that they want and the task of politics is to facilitate that it is to be the tacticians of that and allow the people to be the strategists so i think there's lots of interesting ways both at a personal level mm. and at the level of initiative where you can um emancipate yourself from the default setting and then bring a range of practices and perspectives that embody beautiful this new yeah culture. and it's so tr i think what you're what you're speaking of is so important to see these days in particular and I, it brings to mind that uh this article i read recently and i forgot the name of the article but it was basically somebody who had traveled around different small towns in america and was just reporting on all the amazing kind of emergent initiatives that were happening that were rapidly transforming the social and economic fabric of these small villages. So on the one hand, we have this like, mm. obviously, critically broken and uh, just <laughs> freakishly problematic uh, politics on the national level, while at the same time, unseen this beautiful work is being done on the hyper-local level. And it's so curious that those two things kind of coexist. And it, it um, I, somebody mentioned to me recently, uh, you know, this idea that, you know, it's easy to hear the big tree crashing in the forest, but it's very difficult to hear the thousands of trees growing, you know, this, the budding. And there's mm. something really beautiful that, and it points to the way that we pay attention and the way that we choose what we notice and it implicates the, the media and there's a lot there. And I wonder what you've 
what's been discovered? I'm so curious about, you know, you've referred to the initiative and the alternative parties, these sort of, we might call them uh, emerging, emerging political parties or use, use the word uh, uh, transnational political parties. Uh, what, to the degree that they've kind of taken on this perspective of attempting to recognize that people are already doing what needs to be done and sort of attempting to facilitate that emergent activity so that it happens, uh, maybe emerges more robustly. Uh, what have you seen? Like what is going on in that space? What have you observed? What, what seems to be working? Um, it seems like a completely new form of a political party. I mean, the short answer is, is that I, I don't fully know because I'm not on the ground with, uh, you know, the likes of Indra with the alternative or the Swedish initiative. Um, uh, and I would say that it's, it's this um, place of both, you know, when you're actually in, in the thick of that and you're working with potential and you're seeing, uh, you know, what happens when you just facilitate self-organization uh, that it's a very positive space. And yet the despair is never far from the door because it also really feels piecemeal. Mm. You know, the, the small bud in the forest does feel piecemeal next to the giant tree, even if the tree is crashing. Um, and, and so there's, I think that maybe the pattern that I'm seeing across all the initiatives that are, I'm involved in, and particularly when I'm like chatting to the people who are leading them, is this real sense of um, providence that there's a feeling of being aligned with where the world is going and sh should be going. And there is a kind of the feeling of being a part of an epic uh, shift in society. Uh, you know, I, I imagine akin to how people who grasped the potential of the Industrial Revolution felt mm. in the late 17th century. You know, that, that sense that even though that th this is... Um, very much emerging. There was, a, you know, obviously people could sense the potential. So there's definitely that. And then also there is the reality of there being such little funding for this, very little resource, huge amounts of burnout. Um, and, uh, you know, always the question, are we just in this very niche avant-garde progressive bubble um, and, and seeing very contrary markers in terms of where the rest of society might be at or, you know, who, who's being voted into power. And so it's a, it's a deeply paradoxical age, I think. Um, and, um, and it almost has the, the quality of an epic mm. where we really don't know how it's going to play out. It kind of feels like it's all hanging in the balance. Yeah. Um, and so I suppose what I'm interested in uh, is if that is the case, and knowing that we can't really fully answer that, mm. what do we do? You know, like we spoke about this before, but how do we lead in the midst of that complexity? How do we um, move forward intelligently? How do we seize the right moments? How do we usher something forward that's uh, very big and we're only a tiny part of? And I think that for me, that's probably the most interesting question that I'm sitting mm. with. What do you think? What, what's your, what, can you go on? Tell me more about your thoughts. I'm so curious about it, this tension. Yeah. So there's this really beautiful quote from Oliver Wendell James. He's a Supreme Court justice in the 30s. 
um, and it's uh, uh, it's that I uh, I wouldn't give a fig for the simplicity on this side of complexity, but I would give my right arm for the simplicity on the mm. other side of complexity. And I've always that has always always sat with me, you know that 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 isn't just a trope that there is a real truth in that um in christianity there's an associated idea called your second innocence you know you're born into christianity you believe that there's a loving god that you can find redemption through jesus and then you go on an intellectual inquiry become atheist and realize god that was a crock of shit and then a point happens when you return to what seems like a very simplistic allegorical story and realize it's truth uh, and you live out a mm. second innocence. And I'm really feeling like I'm, I'm so constantly overwhelmed by, you know, cause I've departed from the simplicity on the first side of complexity. And I just feel I'm in the soup. I'm just overwhelmed. I'm often exhausted. I often feel anxious I find it really difficult. I really struggle with it. And I also um, am aware or get glimpses of a simplicity on the other side of complexity and what that might look like, um, which also is just part and parcel of, you know, the, my own m- maturing mm. and my own getting older. Um, and so I think that maybe two things that I'm currently sitting with, um, and I'm sure people listening will have other pieces of this puzzle, uh, the first is to is to genuinely believe that you're being led um, by something greater than you and to create spaces that allow you to get out of your own way to allow that greater intelligence to come through. Um, and, and this is something that I really struggle with because I have a tendency to over-intellectualize I will go with kind of the more strategic option as a way Mm. of managing my anxiety. And actually one of the almost central practices of systems change right now is, uh, I think Jordan Greenhall talks about this, the very feminine quality of resting Mm. and not knowing and holding space for the answer to arise. And I'm very blessed to be surrounded by like very... Um, involved and enlightened women who are very good at this practice, who are very good at sitting and waiting and waiting and waiting, and then bang, it comes. What to do next, where to go. Um, And so it's a deeply, this systems change for all the talk about strategy and theories of change and all of that, actually there is a simplicity on the other side of complexity, which is really tuning in to what feels aligned and trusting that a greater intelligence that is able to hold this complexity and that has some kind of benevolence and is, is guiding you. Um, and that's like very, very difficult. You know, that's, yeah, that's about, that's kind of at the mm. edge of acceptable conversation in, in the systems change world. But I think that it's something that people know to be true. Mm. Um, if they really reflect on where the big shifts have come in the direction of their lives, the big impulses. And I think, you know, it, more than anything, you know, if we, if we talk about, you know, let's say an alter ego gathering, if an alter ego gathering was to be truly edgy, and we haven't really done that yet, we would create a space almost exclusively mm. for that, is how could we all come together, all 20 of us, 40 of us, 80 of us, 
and create the right conditions to be in a high state mindset to actually surrender together and feel into what wants to emerge and tap into some kind of collective intelligence and then be led by that moving forward. Um, because the alternative is, which I am guilty of playing out again and again in a very dysfunctional way, is this egoic hero narrative, this very masculine tendency to try and figure out what's going on and then do something. And I kind of career from one decision to the next, like a pinball mm. in a pinball machine. Um, and so that's the thing that I am kind of, I'm saying this as a kind of, rem firstly, as a reminder to myself um, to do that. And then, so that's, that's part one. And we can pick up part one of that in a second, but just briefly part two is this, um, what I'm noticing is, um, in a way, letting go of some of the weight of responsibility of having to change the system and having to change the world or having to save the world. Um, and, being a little being more humble and more kinder to myself and i was on i was on a uh i was at a rave on saturday night and around four in the morning i was chatting to a friend of mine who's worked you know for the last 10 years in in activism and has really like you know burst his gut and he said you know what i'm 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 now just freelancing i'm now just doing consultancy work and getting good money and my basic idea is that my 20s were for saving the world and now I'm mm. going to let someone else have a go. And I was like, wow, okay, interesting. And he's like, yeah, he's like, I'm just one person, seven billion people here. But the thing that really struck me was he said that all of the forces that will shape the world over the next hundred years, both for good and bad are already in play. They are already on the table. Um, and he said, I am not going to kill myself to make the forces that I believe in come about mm. three months earlier. And I thought that was a very, very interesting mm. idea, you know? And I sense a shift from a, quite an activist mentality of pushing something over the line, which has also has its place. There is a place for struggle and pushing things forward. But I wonder whether there is a, a virtue in actually surfing the waves um, and embodying a kind of a playful naivety and just tinkering and making interventions and, and that, um, and c could we, you know, the kind of the classic perfectionist over anxious overachiever that finds themselves in these circles, in these social change circles, could they, and by they, I mean, I give, give myself permission mm. to be in that space and actually would, would that facilitate part one, the greater intelligence? Because actually, at a very basic level, your nervous system isn't mm. fucking stressed out and can actually receive, you know, yes. the kind of the subtle cues that come from intuition. So there, uh, that's kind of part one and that's, two. Of what I'm I, I love right that, now. and and I mean, it's so true. Um, much of what you say in my in my firsthand experience, and I think. What I noticed too is 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 this connection between sympathetic nervous system activation and my inability to act on behalf of the whole, right? Like when I am not being kind to myself, when I get, when I lose my seat, then I can't do the very work that needs to be done in order to make 
whatever change I am capable of bringing. And so to see the inescapability of that relationship, I think is for me part of how I have over time, I think spent more time in that second simplicity, you know, that, that, that I, 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 uh, have just been burned <laughs> so many times by being uh, uh, sent a whirling. Uh, but, but, and I, I suspect there's no way to get there other than by being burned over and over again. Um, uh, mm. uh, yeah. Yeah. And I, and I say this like from a place of, mm. of burnout. Um, I feel really burnt out. Yeah. And I, you know, I feel like I, you know, if I, if, if I don't shift something, I'm going to pop, you know? Um, so it's definitely <laughs> coming. From yeah. And I, I think you will, right. You will figure it out because you care so much. Hmm. Yeah. And I also think that there's the reality of kind of seasons of our life. You know, like I remember after eight months of organizing with Occupy Wall Street, uh, that I was just completely blasted, like just completely done. You know, I had burned out like three months before I left. and But I was still, I was kind of like walking dead style, just trying to do it. And uh, uh, I I left and I came to Boulder for the first time and... and, uh, spent a long time healing. And what that looked like for me was just ignoring politics and ignoring systems change, not in like a intentionally giving up way, but just as like, it wasn't part of my life. It just wasn't part of my life. I just dropped it. And I think that that was necessary for me so that, that I could again engage later. Um, and and I, I see often, I think in these cultures that people don't give themselves that kind of opportunity to, to profoundly and deeply rest and digest their experiences. Like maybe they'll go for like a weekend retreat, but you know, uh, it takes a long time for our nervous system to kind of unwind these experiences. I know for me, I mean, Occupy was uh, uh, traumatic in both directions, you know, and, and it's just like, I, I still sometimes feel like I'm digesting that experience. It was so big. Yeah, I agree. I I mean, I am basically, you know, we kind of switched, um, our tactics a bit this year and put our energy into launching our new media channel. Uh, it was such a steep learning curve and, you know, made all of the mistakes one makes when they try and do something new. Uh, and I'm now at a place where just feeling burnt out. And so we're going to like wrap up the first season in a couple of weeks and then I'm going to take six weeks off and really, yeah, to give myself that time and space just to renew and for the next impulse to arise. Cause I have this feeling that like, um, Again, it's coming back to this idea of intelligence um, and how intelli- like real intelligence, no matter what your kind of metaphysical theory of it is, it can't come through a clenched being. You know, uh, it's, if, if we are constricted, our intelligence is also limited. And so it's this 
very fine balance between operating in very precarious, poorly funded, quite high stress, mm. complex environments um, and having to remain soft and open. And that's a, it's a, it's a particular type of uh, jujitsu that is required to navigate that particular yeah. world. Um, and that, that is something that we've got, you know, it's a, that we've got very, very little formal training in, um, is how to really navigate yeah. that. And, and, and um, I mean, what, what kind of lightning bolted into my head as you were saying that was, uh, that the way in which what you and I are speaking about now is a kind of personal working through of a, a pattern that is dominating our world right now, right? Like we're lucky enough to be able to take a step back, but like, if there's one thing that our socioeconomic system does really well, I think it's actually restrict the natural intelligence of the human being. And it's like, how many people are unable to be truly intelligent, truly intelligent? You know, if we, if we, if we are agreeing that this kind of intelligence that emerges out of the openness of our being, like, uh, uh, like how rare, if ever, do people access that because they're so constantly on the move and they're, you know, or they're constantly on their phone, they don't have a chance to rest. I mean, our entire world conspires to keep us clenched in that way. It's uh, the strongest argument I've heard for basic income is that it, and obviously it wasn't framed as, it gives you space to tap into your divine and innate intelligence, but it was that it just gives people space to make sense of where to go. And it was in the context of it being more productive for the economy because people can actually take time to consider what jobs they are matched to rather than just take the, the next available job to, to plug the, the the financial gap but i think that there is a i think that maybe what we're touching upon you know whether we can have that at the level of political economy is one thing but in the work culture and the infrastructure of this uh the social change space there really needs to be strong boundaries that uh allow for this renewal to happen and for this, um, and 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 for this tapping into intelligence, mm-hmm. I think Theory U um, by Otto Scharmer does it kind of approaches yes. a process that acknowledges this. You know, in the sense that it guides people to the bottom of the U, where there's a source of inspiration, and then it tries to institutionalize that in policies um, uh, or structures and processes as, as a team. Um, um, but it's it's uh, because we're always operating out of the legacy of the wider work culture. You know, I'm the first person to say that. Like, I just don't make time for that because the, uh, you know, I was in a men's circle during the week and I was just like, fuck, mm. like I'm always in pain. You know, if I really tune into my body, like my neck is in pain, my back is in pain. Like, uh, but I will always choose the productivity hit than resting mm. and caring for my body you know mm-hmm. um and that's really really sad um but that is the that is the truth of it um and i i remember uh, when i first got into the systems change uh space um i think it's the burkana institute who came up with art of hosting the famous facilitation method um and they had done a lot of development of theory and practice in the space, which at the time was like really, really new. Um, and they, I think after seven years, they said, okay, well, we're now going to observe 
the natural cycle and the seventh year is a fallow year mm. and we're all going to stop and make sense of where we are in our lives and what's needed next. And I think that that is incredible, incredibly wise and mature and beautiful. Um, and, you know, to try and introduce this culture uh, is so necessary. You know, again, it's uh, so just to loop around, this is the setting of our own plot. We have our own subplot in the story, which is to usher in metamodernism, which is systems change. Um, but we are also bound by the setting that we're not conscious of. And one of the one of the settings that shapes both of our lives and the lives of other people listening is very unhealthy work culture that actually puts us mm. in an unintelligent space. And the, I think a really key question for everyone listening and for us is how do we how do we become aware of the setting and then change it? Like I'm even thinking about mm. that in the context of funders, you know, where uh, obviously we're trying to get funding for Alter Ego and I am finding myself playing out a scarcity mindset in terms of the money that I ask for. I find myself, um, uh, you know, I had a call with a funder and luckily we have a good enough relationship for me to begin by saying I'm burnt out and I need to take most of August and a little bit of September off. And luckily they're like, you know, really enlightened and forward thinking. And they're like, yeah, of course, you know, like kind of, we all are, who isn't, you know? Um, and so I think that, um, you know, in a way, when I think about like the contribution of initiatives like Alter Ego that are doing this network building, yeah, there's like a real virtue in agenda setting and in, you know, downloading the new metamodern theory, but actually this um, very important work to do in creating healing, restorative spaces and introducing good work culture that it just allows us to be yes. in it for the long haul yeah, and to yeah. enjoy it Enjoying for the long haul as well. Right? Like that's it. That strikes out to me. Like this should be yeah. fun. This should be, and 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 it, and it can be. Like some of the experiences yeah. I had at Occupy were literally the most fun things I've ever done in my life because it was not just like the fun of going to a movie or something. It was the fun of being deeply aligned with that which you know is good and beautiful and then like acting in concert with other people on behalf of that. Like that is like deep fun. Like that's yeah, really fun. Absolutely. And so I think there's so much truth. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Oh no! Just agreeing with you. It's like what a what a radical idea. Let's have an absolute ball while we're trying to bring about a new paradigm. And like a key part of that is really to not take ourselves too seriously. It was one of the core principles of the second gathering. It was like this is too serious to take ourselves too seriously. Um, and just this idea of like can can it be fun? And I think that like. In a way, for me, if I'm being really honest, I've lost my joy for this because I'm burnt out. And um, I really I really hope that by taking a break, I can find my joy and I'm able to hold this lightly. You know, it's like one of the principles of metamodernism is that um, is the naive sincerity and to return to God, like, you know, what are the chances of this happening? Mm. I don't really know, but let's give it a go. You know, let's just try our best and have a good time. Um, so yeah, I'm really, I would really love that for myself. Yeah. Just to have yeah and I it. noticed that that, that has been something to the degree that I can access it seems largely based on how 
regular and disciplined I am about my meditation practice. And I think like the amount of time I've spent meditating, I think you, you have also spent time in like a monastic setting. You know, I spent maybe four, four years total in kind of meditation spaces, like intensive meditation spaces and just learning thoroughly the emptiness of, of phenomena, like gives you this sense of it, it's all a game, you know, it is at the end of the day, a game. And so why not enjoy it? You know, why not enjoy it? And if, and if you're not enjoying it, then that's a signal that, you know, something you're not like, maybe take a step. I mean, not like you should enjoy every moment, but uh, if the joy is gone, then that's sort of a message, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's obviously a message that I do not listen to. Well, me, um, me either, me either. And, and, and even in the in the story you're saying of like asking yeah. or telling funders that you were going to take some time off, I think there's a way in which uh, we are kind of deconstructing and building a new culture in those kinds of interactions. Like I experience that often with the people that I work with, where I'm like nervous about saying something like, "Hey, I, I can't make it to this thing," you know, I'm. I mean, I, I need to spend a day in, in silence and I tell them that and they're just like, oh, great, you know, go and do it. And and I feel a kind of burden dropping off of my shoulders because I had projected onto them that they were going to judge me for not being a good worker bee. But it's just yeah. these embedded cultural stories that I think as people who are doing this work, like we are on the front lines of really trying to, you know, as they say, kind of decolonialize ourselves. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Curious, you know, when that happened for you that you started seeing yourself or identifying less as a mainstream progressive and and what that transformation has, uh, what the the ramifications or the impacts of that transformation have been? It's in process. And it's one of the things that probably is, is one of the major sources of anxiety, which is that this project started as a left-wing, classically activist project. That was the circles that we were in and still are in. Um, and it, the idea was that left-wing politics is failing. It needs a you know insulin injection of spirituality to revive it. And what's interesting is that when you go into uh, particularly developmental thinking, which I think is an important thing to say is that Alter Ego started as, you know, we need to connect spirituality and politics, but it was only then that we discovered the broader field of developmental thinking, integral theory, spiral dynamics, and then eventually metamodernism as a kind of a broader political framework that houses those ideas. And all of them talked about a journey um, from uh, first tier thinking, which is thinking that your worldview is correct. Um, and if only everyone thought like you, the world would be better, to second-tier thinking, which is um, um, uh, a way of seeing the world where people's worldviews are developmentally informed and are valid from that developmental perspective. And the work isn't to you know, defeat one worldview with another. It's to create a, a space to integrate them um, and to find the healthy expression of them um, and to bring harmony between them. Um, so this is a, one of the core aspects of metamodernism is that, you know, pre-modernism, modernism 
postmodernism, all of them are uh, worldviews that are correspond to levels of psychological development. And so if you're at a metamodern level, you have a, they say, a level of cognitive complexity that allows you to apprehend more perspectives, often perspectives that are missing from the debate like, debate like marginalized groups, and that corresponds with universal values. Um, and, um, and yet there is a trap within that thinking uh, that you are unwilling to accommodate people who don't think like mm. you. And so the key shift to metamodern thinking is is integrating the yes, we need universal values, we need to take into account all of these perspectives, be aware of power dynamics, but we also uh, have to be aware of uh, the contradiction when we dismiss and mm. exclude or shame and you know dismiss as deplorable people who do not think like us and that actual true solidarity is solidarity with perspectives mm. that are even different from your own now uh, it's it's very the thing that i'm struggling with is that it's easy to say in practice or in theory but in practice um you know where does your discernment about where we should go then leave you know are you left in this kind of mad relativism where everyone is correct and I think the thing that I'm struggling with maybe is that um, as I, you know, uh, appreciate, um, you know, more conservative views and the validity of them, obviously, Jonathan Haidt, the moral psychologist, his book, The Righteous Mind, would talk about the moral foundations of the left and right. And from his inquiry, he would say, I can't really say that the left is more right than the right that both of them just have different ways of seeing the world. And it's actually about trying to bring them into some degree of accommodation and harmony. And that is a very difficult pill to mm. swallow if you're in a classic left-wing circle and you see the dominance of right-wing ideas. Um, and I think I struggle emotionally with it because it feels like a betrayal of my tribe. And I fear the rejection of that tribe. So as a very, as maybe as an example to ground this dilemma, you know, in the alter ego community, we've been really fixated and fascinated by Jordan Peterson, uh, who is, you know, at a depth psychology level, you know, reintegrating our religious mythic foundations and bringing a very strong narrative of spiritual psychological growth. He's like, mm. he's basically mainstream shadow work. It's like a really incredible contribution and it's very profound. Um, and yet he says a lot of things in public that just mm -hmm. really feel quite odious to a kind of people from a progressive background. And it's a, and something feels off about that. Um, and, and yet we don't want to reject him outright. We want to be able to say yes and, or we want to be able to integrate the good of Jordan Peterson and then transcend it with progressive values and progressive perspectives. Um, so uh, the last thing I we're doing in the first season of videos is a series where we compare and contrast mm. Russell Brand and Jordan Peterson and a range of issues and try and just figure mm. out what a, a metamodern synthesis looks like. And I'm really genuinely afraid of putting myself out there mm. as someone who's tacitly endorsing Peterson because I feel like I get hammered by my friends who are, you know, really into intersectional mm. activism and identity politics. Um, and, um, and so it's a very, it's a, it's a very strange, I feel, I find myself in a very existentially confusing place where, um, 
I still kind of broadly agree with progressive values and progressive policies, um, and yet feel like I need to be trying to integrate other perspectives. Um, and so I'm, I'm, you know, mm. I'm, to be honest, I'm a bit lost, um, which is quite difficult then when you have to run a, you know, ostensibly a political organization that's convening uh, people around a new agenda. And you're like, yeah. well, I, to be honest, I don't have a fucking clue where we're going. Um, but then I also do, you know, there's also like, um, there's also, you know, a clear sense that we need to tackle the environment and we need to tackle alienation and we need to tackle inequality and we need to promote a developmental culture. Um, but when it comes to things like intersectionality and identity politics, I'm more confused, you know, because there's really strong criticisms of it mm. that I am yeah. um, sympathetic That's, to. Yeah. I mean, there's so much that comes up for me in hearing you say that. And one is for so long, I've thought like, we'll know that we've made it to a new kind of politics when we have leaders who can admit to not knowing. I mean, in America, at least, you know, if you change your mind, yeah. you be, you, that's, a, that's a negative, even if it's for good reasons. You know, you get called a flopper or something else. And uh, just how ridiculous that is. Um, and then uh, – uh, differentiate and i never had this thought before until you you were speaking about jordan peterson and, and the right is you know can we differentiate between the kind of perhaps corrupted expression of the moral psychology of the right and the underlying kind of adaptive moral system right like there's some way in which really beautiful intentions yes. for protection and security and uh, clarity and making appropriate boundaries gets turned into like, <laughs> at least in America, like just the, some crazy ass shit that like does not make sense. And so can we on the one hand say no to that with very, with strong clarity while also welcoming in the kind of underlying insights and clarities that the the minds of the people not in power but who look or are somehow in, implicated in that power uh, are, are holding. I think that's so spot on. And I think that what we're really missing is a very strong progressive politics that is inclusive of all the the moral sentiments um and is able to say no to that wall but yes i honor your need for order and sanctity and security and actually this more complex solution is how you achieve that um and i think that the it's being you know we often talk about a, a politics of greater depth and complexity that we need to have a leadership that can be in that area of depth to really name the emotion and the and the emotional need that comes with a particular endorsement of a particular policy um but say no to you know a, a frankly fucked up expression of it or <laughs> you know or if i'm being kind a suboptimal expression um and so i think that um there that, that's a very interesting way of approaching it and also to recognize that um the same equally yes. applies to the left that there's some really uh beauty and validity in values like fairness and then they find corrupted expression in 
you know, literally, you know, like, you know, cultures of dependency in dysfunctional welfare states, for example. Um, um, and I think that, again, the, the space that hasn't been tried is the fallible space, the space where we can come together and really acknowledge the failures uh, of the past of the left and the right, um, and also the uncertainty about where to go. I mean, that's, you know, in, in a way I've been thinking about like, how do we compete with the drama of, of mainstream politics? Because it is a classically plot-driven drama of there's good guys, there's bad guys, there's conflict. And I think that it is the, somehow the, it's a, it's a different kind of drama when people are more vulnerable and more acknowledging of uncertainty, and you are almost required mm. to participate in it in order to work. Um, and, and potentially a representative soundbite media-driven system just isn't capable of that. And again, that's an example of where the setting cannot support a new plot, and therefore we have to reinvent the setting. Uh, you know, and this is obviously one of uh, the listening, uh, the mm. Meta Moderna six new forms of politics um, is a democratization politics that actually facilitates co-development mm. within political conversation. Thank you, Ronan. This conversation has been just so wonderful. Um, I appreciate the mirror that you are to me and the vulnerability that I see you bringing to every space that I hear you. And it's, it's inspiring. And it's something that I am endeavoring to embody more of in my own life. And you're helping me do that. Thank you so much. Yeah. So we've been a really beautiful conversation and it's been nice to, uh, just to acknowledge what's going on for me right now you know, and to, and to know that that's part of us all making sense of where we're at.